This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One new piece that might be of interest to Dig listeners is Toby Haslett's Magic Actions, which looks back at last summer's uprisings and makes a case for the urgency and efficacy of riots. Quote, We need not fear that word. In fact, it's vital to insist over the drone of an amnesiac discourse that last year's spate of protest was propelled, made fiercely possible, by massive clashes in the street, not tainted or delegitimized by them, nor assembled from thin air. Haslett continues, Any left that hopes to assemble its flailing forces must find a way to join the two clearest fronts of conflict. On one hand, build class power by wrestling benefits from the state. On the other, slay the beast that eats the dark and poor. Dig listeners can take 25% off a yearly print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, one word, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 16 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That is N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is my interview with climate journalist Kate Aronoff on her book, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back. At present, we are not on track to cut carbon emissions deeply and rapidly enough to avoid climate catastrophe. But politics as we knew them are up in the air. Old taboos around deficit spending are out the window, and young people are mobilized like never before. So how did U.S. and global climate policy and politics get to their current sorry state, and what is the path forward? Stay tuned for an in-depth discussion. Before we get started, this podcast only happens because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We do not paywall anything because we want everyone to be able to listen to everything, regardless of their ability to pay. But we can only afford to do that because those of you who can afford to support us contribute. That's how it works, and I'm very pleased to report that it has so far worked out well. If you depend on The Dig, and you can afford to make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig, please take a quick moment to do so. We also have left-wing books, mugs, and tote bags for those of you who contribute at least $10 a month. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Kate Aronoff, a staff writer at The New Republic covering climate and energy. She is the author of Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet, and How We Fight Back. The co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal and co-editor of We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. 
Kate Aronoff, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. You write, quote, My argument in this book is not that capitalism has to end before the world can deal with the climate crisis. Dismantling a centuries-old system of production and distribution and building a carbon-neutral and worker-owned alternative is almost certainly not going to happen within the small window of time the world has to avert runaway disaster. The private sector will be a major part of the transition off fossil fuels. Some people will get rich, and some unseemly actors will be involved. Capitalist production will build solar panels, wind turbines, and electric trains. But whether we deal with climate change or not can't be held hostage to executives' ability to turn a profit. To handle this crisis, capitalism will have to be replaced as society's operating system, setting out goals other than the boundless accumulation of private wealth. This argument provoked a bit of controversy in the audience a few years back in Chicago when we discussed it on a panel we did at the Socialism Conference. And so maybe we can generate some a new round of controversy here. Both of us, of course, would love to live in a socialist world. We've got to continue to fight for one. But why do you think that it's important for people to understand that we need to deal with climate change before we win an entirely new mode of production? And then what's entailed by that conclusion that we need to pursue radical social democratic reforms on the road to socialism? Is this a theory of how radical social democratic reforms can lead to socialism? Or is it just a reality that the fast ticking climate clock imposes on us? Or is it some of both? I would say it's a reality. You know, I I think there is sort of an interesting theoretical debate one could have about if the climate crisis were something which we're playing out over the course of 200 or 300 years or a thousand years, to think about, well, should we change the system we have and tweak it slightly in order to take on the crisis? Or should we create an entirely new mode of production and build up, you know, this this workaround alternative? Unfortunately, we just don't have that time. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its 2018 report on 1.5 degrees Celsius outlines that we have roughly 12 years, right? And, and that is now roughly nine years. because that was three years ago, uh, in which to rapidly decarbonize the global economy, which is an enormous, enormous challenge. And so in order to meet that 12-year window, that ever-shrinking 12-year window, uh, we have to use the productive system in which we live, which, you know, is, is not my sort of ideal situation. But then again, neither is global warming. You know, what I do think, and and I try to lay this out in the book, is that there are different ways of meeting that crisis, and there are enormous political stakes in how we use that 12 years, right? And that there are different visions of sort of climate action, which put us on a path toward something like socialism, at least, right? Or a response to the climate crisis can leave many of the extractive systems which define capitalism today in place. There's nothing, you know, baked into capitalism that has to run on fossil fuels. And it's an enormously resilient system. And there's no reason to think it, it will be invulnerable to the climate crisis or not figure out a way to sort of extract profit uh, off of, off of you know, renewables and solar and wind, right? And I think those are, you know, the stakes that we're, we're talking about. And making the case, which programs like the Green New Deal do, that the road toward dealing with 
the climate crisis, you know, should be one of non-reformist reforms to use sort of Andre Gorz's framing, right? And that we want a better world. As socialists, you know, I think that the ultimate goal, right, is to transcend capitalism. And we have this really short-term problem, um, which I think gets lost in some of the more kind of mainstream liberal thinking about the climate crisis and how to take it on, which is that capitalism as a logic is really incompatible, right, with dealing with the climate crisis, right, because it has a sort of constant thirst for expansion. I make the case in the book, and other people have made this case as well, that something which looks almost nothing like capitalism we know today will probably be what we get if we deal with this crisis in, in any sort of reasonable way. I spoke to um, a climate scientist named Kevin Anderson, who, you know, does a lot of modeling on this question, you know, knows the science far better than I do. And he said, you know, if we deal with this problem, it entails a root and branch change to capitalism as we know it. I don't know whether that looks like any capitalism we would we would recognize today. I don't know if that looks like socialism, but it looks very different than what we have now. And so I think the the sort of big lie of, I think, mainstream liberal thinking about the climate crisis is that there's a sort of easy switch, that there's something that can flick on the type of power that's sort of flowing through our lines, keep basically everything we have today in place and just change what powers it. Uh, and that will you know deliver us from the climate crisis, that's not true. We have a lot of evidence to say that's not that's not exactly true. Any sort of reasonable solution to dealing with the problem looks, you know, something like a really radical shift in our current economic order. In terms of those liberal myths that would like people to believe and be comforted by the fact, perhaps, that we can basically have the political economic order that we have now, but without climate change, what role do carbon capture and geoengineering play? And would they might they be helpful tools or are they just techno fixes to a problem that's fundamentally political and economic? That I, has been a <laughs> very controversial question on on parts of the climate left. My standpoint on it is that they can be useful tools more so carbon capture and storage and sequestration but i think part of the problem is that there is a industry-led conversation about carbon capture happening which would say that we can keep up business as usual if we just add in a lot of this technology which doesn't work at scale um, and hope that at some point we can you know scale it up to levels we've never seen, and which you know right now seem sort of unfathomable given the really really limited um, use that it that it has. At the same time, there is almost no climate modeling on a 1.5 degree scenario in particular, where you know there is no carbon capture, there is no direct air capture, um, which is a, a another process that sucks carbon directly down from from the atmosphere, um, and so. I think, you know, looking and, and talking to folks about this, that we do need some level of these technologies. And, and you know, as a, as a socialist, I want those conversations to be had uh, on the left and to not sort of cede that ground, right, to, you know, people like Occidental Petroleum or ExxonMobil um, to determine who owns those technologies, uh, you know, who is, is profiting off of them, right? Kim Stanley Robinson has, has written that 
carbon sequestration should be treated like a public utility, which I think is is basically right. If this is so important, if this technology is so needed, which I think there's a case we made that it is, um, then why leave it up to companies which have spent decades lying about this problem and misleading the public? You write, quote, the main barrier to climate action isn't a technological one. The core tools needed to deal with this problem already exist. The problem has been power and that the people proposing the most workable, reasonable solutions don't have enough of it. You continue, quote, One of the scarier concepts in the science of global warming has to do with feedback loops, disasters that feed on and exacerbate one another, like California's wildfires in 2020, unleashing 30 million more tons of carbon dioxide that year than the state's power sector. We can harness a different type of feedback loop by prioritizing climate policies that make people's lives better in the short run and grow the power of democratic institutions like labor unions. A Green New Deal can swell the multiracial working class coalition invested in designing and fighting to expand those programs as they scale back emissions and build up a fairer, cleaner economy. And it can create durable electoral majorities that ensure those changes stick for decades to come. What those critics of the Green New Deal have tended to miss is that its policy ambitions are one and the same with its political strategy. To what extent has Biden begun to learn those lessons? He's spending much bigger than Obama. And Obama's model after the financial crisis, of course, was to do spending stimulus under the radar and insufficiently and then follow it with austerity. And so Biden seems to finally at least recognize that there's a connection, should be obvious, but that there is definitely a connection between policy and politics. But is Biden proposing spending that's big enough to confront the climate crisis? What level of warming is Biden's climate policy on track to send us to? I feel like a lot of different things can be true at the same time of of the Biden administration, right? I mean, what we have seen, right, is that Biden came in talking a very big game about climate policy in particular, and we don't have any climate policy. Right now, as we speak, you know, there are talks ongoing between Republicans and Democrats, um, which are really leaning towards some sort of scary very familiar tropes about bipartisanship being the sort of thing to pursue. I don't think it bodes well, and I don't think Biden deserves a lot of the praise that he's gotten for um, his climate plans. I do think, you know, I think that can be true. And I do think there are meaningful things that are changing, at least for the COVID stimulus. Biden and his administration were willing to spend a lot of money, right? We're willing to, you know, put up a big package that um, expanded, albeit temporarily, the social safety net in ways that were critically necessary um, for the pandemic, things like unemployment insurance and a child tax credit. Those are probably going to go away. Um, But there was this willingness to say the government can spend a lot of money. We can do big things that can make people's lives better. And we don't have to be afraid of that. And to avoid this sort of austerity speak, which I, even though I lived through it as a politicized and politically aware adult, some of the quotes you have from Obama about the need to impose austerity while unemployment was still at extremely 
high levels. It's just astounding in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, the message to Congress from Obama in his 2010 State of the Union is we need to tighten our belts now. It's time to it's time to, you know, buck up. And this uh, <laughs> these days of fat spending are over. So we haven't seen that yet. I mean, maybe we will next year. I'm, I'm not totally convinced. I think the spending levels are one thing which, you know, there has been some progress on. But when you look at the climate content of the American jobs plan, for instance, so much of it is still framed in a way that is not designed to deliver direct benefits to people, right? Even if that might be true of other sort of parts of the plan or the American Families Plan, when it comes to climate, the goal is very much to leverage private investment, right? And so you see so much of spending on whether it's transmission lines or electric vehicles or clean energy is framed in terms of tax credits, in terms of, you know, baiting banks, baiting private finance into green spending uh, and very little actually direct spending on, you know, things like a civilian conservation corps. Even as Biden has taken up some of the bigger climate demands as a result, you know, of pressure from folks like the Sunrise Movement has not taken up the political logic of the Green New Deal, right, which bakes in this sort of virtuous cycle, which says, you know, climate policy both has to win uh, big D and small D Democratic majorities. And the way to do that is to make it clear that climate policy will make your life better and, and have that be the sort of foregrounding uh, ethos of, 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 of policy that that passes. Um, and, and, you know, Biden is not doing that, right? He's, you know, taken up <laughs> like some demands from the movement. But what I think is really powerful about a Green New Deal is that there is a political strategy baked into it that is based on a reading of how climate policy has not passed in, in this country by ignoring the lives of working people often. I think maybe cynically until there is a sort of climate program which really is is in tune with, you know, the fact that many, many people in this country are suffering and that uh, climate climate policy really has to make its its offer clear uh, to people who don't care about this issue, um, you know, I, I think there's a sort of limited ceiling on, on what can happen. What is the political balance of power around climate right now? Is Biden getting pushback from any sort of constituency or power block that he cares about? It's a complicated question, because on the one hand, the overwhelming block on climate policy is the Republican Party, right? And right. that you have a Republican Party, which will not vote for climate policy. <laughs> the, I, I don't want to minimize that as like being the main block. Uh, but there's also inter-democratic party coalitional politics, um, which are holding up climate policy in their own right, which is that, you know, most obviously, right, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are not sort of keen to vote for a Green New Deal. Um, but they're not alone in that, right? And there is still just such a, a commitment to this, this, you know, line that climate policy is something which is important when it's convenient and is a nice thing to have a line on, but is not core to democratic governance. And there's also a very complicated question around labor and sort of different segments of the labor movement who have a lot of sway at, you know, 
the highest echelons of the Democratic Party, where, you know, the leadership of certain international unions really have veto power, essentially, in, in, in many sort of influential democratic spaces to say what climate policy should look like to take, you know, any sort of constraints on fossil fuels off the table, for instance. I think it's a very nuanced conversation about what the role of the labor movement in climate policy looks like. We can get into that if we want, but you know, I think that's that's certainly a factor um, in how sort of Democrats are moving around this question. Yeah, let's let's get into that because one major task of Green New Deal politics has been to break down this prevailing neoliberal form of environmental politics that pits workers against the earth and jobs against the environment. And you were just referring to the building trades unions, I believe, which have traditionally been the sector of the labor movement most committed to defending fossil fuel infrastructure because so many members of the building trades unions get their jobs from fossil fuel infrastructure. Has any progress been made on this front of breaking down these really terrible divides between labor and environment? Or is like the archetypal coal miner still the victim of villainous environmentalists in the popular imagination. Yeah, I mean something that, you know, your your listeners will be familiar with and which you just, you know, talked to talk to some folks about, which I think is really hopeful, is um, DSA and DSA's Eco Socialist Caucus organizing for the PRO Act with the painters union, right? And and many other unions, like pushing for what is now the demand of the US labor movement, um, which would be great for climate policy, as, as, as folks have talked about on this show, uh, and is, you know, just important for making sure that solar and wind can be uh, pro-worker industries as they, as they develop. So there are signs of progress, and I don't think that the climate and jobs conversation is where it was a decade ago, in part because I think the left has gotten a lot better at navigating those conversations. And, you know, DSA deserves an enormous amount of credit for, for, you know, helping, helping drive that forward and having the sort of concrete fight rather than, you know, having this conversation about jobs and the environment in the abstract, which is so often um, where it is and creating sort of a ground for, for shared struggle around it. At the same time, you know, I do think there is this really frustrating way in which the conversation is behind and mainstream Democrats and even, you know, parts of the green movement, I would, I would argue, uh, still sort of look at the fossil fuel industry as this really enormous source of good union jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the coal industry, that's obviously not true. Uh, and if you look at the oil and gas industry, where you know well over a hundred thousand people lost their jobs between March and August alone of last year, a hundred seven thousand oil and gas jobs lost, while the companies made out fine. The companies got a lot of money from the federal government, and got bailed out um, after oil prices crashed, and you know took full advantage of PPP loans uh, and used and, and and turned around and fired a lot of people uh, and are, you know, actively interested in automating huge parts of their workforce. And so there is a way in which, you know, the the interests of the fossil fuel industry are still seen by well-intentioned climate activists as synonymous with those of workers in the fossil fuel industry, which could not be less true after the last year. I mean, I think the coal industry is 
the most kind of grotesque example of this where you have companies going bankrupt, companies like Black Jewel uh, in, in Kentucky going bankrupt and just shorting their workers of, you know, healthcare, of pensions, of paychecks, in, in the case of Black Jewel, reliably, I mean, for the coal industry and increasingly for the oil and gas industry, they've just used bankruptcy courts to sort of write off any responsibility to their workers, you know, whether that's through things like uh, remediating mine lands or things like the Black Lung Healthcare Fund, which, you know, the coal industry has, has had an obligation to, to pay into and has sort of developed these sort of elaborate ways to shut that off. These industries and the, and the executives in particular have no interest in their workers. I mean, the coal industry and the oil and gas industry have been busting their unions for a very, very long time. And so, you know, it's it's bizarre when that's the case, when, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are being laid off for Democrats to argue in Congress that we want to protect jobs. Which is reaffirming a Republican and fossil fuel friendly framework, which then blames Democrats and environmentalists for destroying those jobs, which are actually, as you write, being destroyed by factors that have nothing to do with environmental policy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, there are any number of examples of this, unfortunately, of the Democratic Party just swallowing right wing talking points and, and spitting them back out to make them make themselves seem reasonable. To look at the oil and gas industry over the last year, which has gone through such turmoil, um, is really in a moment of crisis. And to say that everything looks like it did in 2010 is insane. Yeah, you're right. The transition is already happening. Moving forward, that shift can be managed and orderly on a timeline in touch with climate science and supporting communities that have historically depended on extraction to build a sustainable future. Or Democrats can be blamed for the wreckage as vulture funds descend, CEOs raid health care and pension funds, and millions are left behind in states the party, the Democratic Party, should be winning. Yeah, and this is in a... In a, in a chapter about nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, um, which is what I put out as a sort of alternative to that scenario, which is already happening, right? Which is already, you know, allowing bankruptcy courts, allowing fossil fuel executives to throw people under the bus. And if this conversation is not had, you know, in a way that puts things like nationalization on the table, that does really leave the terms of the transition up to fossil fuel executives who are more than happy to abandon whole parts of this country if it's no longer profitable for them. And I think, you know, conversations about climate policy which say, well, you know, why don't we just regulate the fossil fuel industry out of existence? But if there is not a sort of attention paid to the fact that that leaves, you know, fossil fuel executives to make every decision about how coal plants close down, about how oil and gas plants close down as a part of this transition, that, you know, is both, I think, horrible from the perspective of anyone who has any sort of solidarity with working people, um, like they'll get screwed over. But in a politically pragmatic sense, it just breeds opposition, right? If you allow the sorts of processes to continue, which have been endemic to places like Appalachia, where you've seen the coal industry just walk away, leave, you know, public spheres just cratered, that breeds opposition that will make climate policy almost impossible, right? And we know that from, you know, looking at things like the Gilets Jaunes, where if you don't, like, look at what 
what policy actually means on the ground to folks who are dealing with it, you know, then then it, it the policy doesn't happen. If you just let, you know, today's oil and gas bosses um, manage this this decline, then I mean, I, I don't see how massive political opposition doesn't happen. And there is a sort of public alternative to that, which, you know, I argue is is nationalization by saying that this transition will be orderly, will be managed and will put workers first, which we know that we can't trust the fossil fuel industry to do. A really interesting thing you point out is that, quote, the fact that union contracts for clean energy tend to be weaker than those building fossil fuel infrastructure speaks to the relative weakness of labor when standards for that industry were being set. In rooftop solar, there's no unionized work to be had in clean energy at all and seemingly scant interest from bigger unions in organizing those workforces. Do you think that the way that the rise and fall of unions in the U.S. has shaped their relative power in dirty versus clean energy industries, do you think that's shaped the way the debate about climate and the way the politics of climate play out on the ground? Yeah, it, it, it really has. And if you think about when the coal industry was becoming historically important, when oil was becoming historically important, we were at a point of much stronger union density, right? That... Unions could negotiate really strong contracts for oil refineries, for instance, which still, you know, have have very well paid union jobs for the coal industry where, you know, the bosses have tried to break up a lot of the unions and have. But there are still, you know, a a core of of, of some strong union jobs that are being killed off um, in no small part by by the bosses. But the solar and wind industries are much more recent that the recent growth and importance of these industries has come along in a period of historic weakness for labor and that's you know really uh beneficial for you know in no small part for solar and wind companies uh who would much rather have non-unionized workforces who would much rather you know pay bad wages and even you know in those uh parts of the renewable sector which are unionized namely you know wind tends to be um ten, tends to have more union contracts in it obviously than than solar um you know i've talked to workers who build pipelines and who build wind turbines and say you know my work is just a lot better when i build a an oil pipeline than when i build a wind turbine the wind turbine contracts are just worse even though you know the work is kind of the same the same people can do it um, but the protections aren't as strong. You, the work is less steady, less well paid. All of the, you know, all all of, all of these things that has has made it easy to say that renewables are anti-worker, and that you know, how dare you ask people to go into this industry that does not come with the same protections that come from fossil fuel jobs? Um, and it's made pitting those two things against each other a lot easier. Makes that such a tantalizing talking point for the right i mean even for sort of liberal democrats and you know i don't think that is helped necessarily by the fact that solar and wind are often talked about as these sort of inherently good actors right as if they are just you know soldiers in the climate fight who are you know willing to you know put everything on the line so that we can save the world 
they're companies, right? They are companies. They have a profit motive and they can be anti-union and often are anti-union. Um, and it's, it, I don't think it, it really serves the climate movement very well by ignoring that fact. I mean, this industry is about to get a lot of money, right? Regardless of what happens in the United States, there are policies in the European Union and, you know, in China, in, in many other parts of the world that will make wind, solar, and clean energy just a much bigger factor in the global economy. And pretending that they're climate activists instead of for-profit companies really doesn't serve anyone. And I think if the argument from unions is that these jobs aren't good jobs, which often they frankly aren't, you know, they, but they can be. Um, and it's it's worth asking why, right? The, there's nothing magical about coal or oil that lend themselves to uh, having strong unionized workforces, people fought for them, right? People died so that coal mines could be unionized. Solar and wind will not organize themselves magically. Um, there, you know, have to be drives to to make that happen. There, you know, will will be a fight. In in 2018, we saw massive teacher strikes in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma. And you note that what those three states had in common is that they have fossil fuel based economies in part. Yet the strikes, of course, were not at all explicitly about climate or the environment. Did did you nonetheless see some sort of nascent eco-socialist or perhaps just at least eco-social democratic labor politics taking shape? Or, or why is that connection? Why do you think that connection is important and not just a coincidence? Yeah, I mean... I, that connection is important, not necessarily because I think there's, you know, a, a budding eco-socialism <laughs> within within those strikes necessarily. But what those strikes did represent, in part, were claims on natural resource wealth. Coal companies, you know, especially in the case of West Virginia and Kentucky, have gotten very wealthy. Um, and, you know, the their decline has meant that you know, schools are struggling to make to make ends meet, to, to make budgets. And the most absurd of, of, of those situations was in Oklahoma, where the oil and gas industry has made a ton of money off of the fracking boom, and yet school budgets have, have just declined. And there are just different ways to deal with resource wealth, including within the United States, right? In Alaska, the Alaska Permanent Fund pays out a check to people who live there because, you know, because the state has enormous oil resources, right? What's more the case in Appalachia has just been extraction, right, of, of funneling these, these resources up toward, toward the top. And I think why the story was interesting to me as a climate reporter who, you know, does not spend a lot of time um, covering education is that the jobs versus environment debate, which we were just talking about is often framed as one that is between unions or between, you know, fossil fuel workers, proper sort of coal miners, these very like masculine professions uh, and kind of tree hugging environmentalists. But if you look at sort of what the decline of fossil fuels has looked like in practice, it's not, you know, just those workers who are affected. I mean, there are whole tax bases which are bound up in the fossil fuel economy and who really depend as of now on these revenues from it. And so the idea that, you know, a conversation about jobs and climate is only one about, you know, transitioning fossil fuel workers into uh, into a clean energy economy sort of ignores just how 
bound up our world is in, in fossil fuels in a, in a very, you know, tangible way, including things like public school budgets. And so there's no reason not to think of teachers and nurses, um, not only as low carbon workers, right, people who are doing very socially necessary work um, that, you know, is, is important for a good society, I would argue, but also as workers who are on the front lines of the climate crisis of, of, you know, of, of an energy transition. It's not, it's not just a matter of transitioning a very small number of extractive sector workers, but, you know, the whole sort of community um, that, is, that is built up around, around these industries. The Green New Deal is fundamentally about using government to democratically redirect what the economy produces. And that includes not only what sort of work people do, but everyone's right to a job. And the notion that people have a right to a job sounds kind of radical today, but the demand for full employment was once very standard in left liberal politics during the long New Deal era. How did that all come to an end under Jimmy Carter? And why do we need to bring full employment back to the political mainstream to address climate change? Yeah, so full employment has historically been a hugely important demand for big parts of the Democratic Party coalition and is important for climate in part because there's just an enormous amount of work that the private sector does not think are valuable that need to be done. Things like remediating the urban heat island effect in uh, in, in big cities, remediating wetlands, um, all of this really sort of necessary work uh, that, that, you know, is just very hard to make a profit off of. And something like a federal job guarantee, which uh, has reemerged as a demand in the last several years, can do that work and, and can say, you know, if we think this sort of thing is important for the government to embark on to, you know, build trails to, you know, remake our public sphere on the order of what the New Deal did, there's no reason why we should trust the private sector to do it. And so full employment went from this mainstream liberal demand to, I guess, like a pie in the sky impossibility. And that, you argue, is part of this broader neoliberal political culture, a capitalist realism that takes hold. And you argue that that's actually a far bigger obstacle to dealing with climate change than outright climate denialism. Why? In the book, I'm just trying to think through, like, why is it that it seems so impossible to deal with the climate crisis in the United States in particular? And the place I sort of land, right, is that, you know, we are living uh, at the tail end of decades of destruction of the labor movement, of left ideas, of social movements. And there's a sort of creative element of neoliberalism that I, I think is important to sort of understand about injecting these sort of radical ideas about how markets and governments relate to one another. But there's also this really destructive project, right, of trying to destroy the idea that anything else could exist, that there, you know, are any sort of alternate ways of organizing society. You know, I think capitalist realism tries to say that not only is anything else impossible to imagine, but that it's really stupid to imagine it. Stupid and kind of non-serious. Yeah, as if, you know, what we're living in now is so great that any alternative would be, you know, un unthinkable. And something that's been sort of interesting watching the Green New Deal, I mean, because the climate movement, you know, does not necessarily come out of a socialist organizing 
tradition doesn't, you know, have a sort of deep history of like utopian thought um, is to see the Green New Deal kind of reinject that into the climate debate to sort of put out a vision for how the world could look better and, you know, sort of bringing back ideas onto the table like full employment pushed for by the labor movement and black freedom struggle. These ideas are sort of starting to reemerge, which aren't, you know, in themselves new, but are being fit into this vision of what a low carbon, better society uh, could, could look like. Republican denialism, though, still does play a role, you write, in facilitating this neoliberal common sense or capitalist realism in that it has really lowered the bar for what it means for Democrats to be good on climate so that rejoining the Paris Accords and, of course, following the science, whatever that means, is good enough. And you don't you don't draw false equivalences between Democrats and Republicans, but you do say that overemphasizing those differences obscures some really fundamental things that they have in common that have shaped the bipartisan climate politics for, for decades. Ha- have Democrats used Republicans as a foil to excuse their own record on climate and to distract us from the fact that both major parties have this shared commitment to a politics, this capitalist realism that makes confronting climate change impossible? Because Biden not doing what's necessary to address climate change, what the science says is necessary, that that seems like another form of climate denial. Yeah, I was originally going to call the book The New Denialism, and that's a less sexy title than Overheated, so it got lost. (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, part of of the inspiration for for writing the book in the first place was A, seeing how these dynamics work in different places where denialism hasn't been a part of the mainstream conversation, right? Looking at climate politics in Europe and seeing this huge spectrum of proposals for how to deal with the crisis, not just about whether it exists or not. And, you know, also seeing just during the Trump administration, when I did most of the reporting for this book, just how low that bar really was. Not that it hadn't been low before, but when you have, you know, a climate denying president who calls global warming a hoax, saying basically anything that, you know, the science is real, we believe the science, all these sort of like nonsense, seeing those sort of lauded as, you know, as as progress when they're, you know, A, sort of meaningless and B, don't connect to a, a really serious sort of policy agenda. And, you know, Democrats have been uh remarkably uncreative about how to how to take on this crisis and and have you know gotten a lot of credit for for doing very little um really just not you know looking at the scale of the crisis head on and and that was you know what i have tried to do in the book is really mine the difference between what's on the table politically and kind of the really sort of astounding scale of what's necessary. The fact that climate change is really the terrain on which politics in the 21st century will play out, regardless of how you think about climate change as an issue, it is just a reality um, for, for you know, the rest of our lives, um, for, for the, you know, entirety of human existence, right, is keeping warming below, um, below 1.5 or 2 degrees, that, you know, that is a, an awesome challenge to have to take on. And the idea that a few sort of market tweaks or market mechanisms or, you know, very cautious nudging investments are going to take that on is, you know, what Democrats have been sort of happy to put out for 
the last several decades, but really, you know, is just, uh, it's, it's a planning challenge, right? And I think that's, um, that's something that has been uncomfortable for Democrats, especially to talk about for the last 30 years is to think about, you know, the sort of constructive powers of the state and the government to say, well, if we think these sorts of jobs should be done, then the government can hire people directly to do them. The goal is to not surpass warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, but the Paris Agreement sets its target significantly higher at 2 degrees. And I just read the other day that we may be surpassing 1.5 degrees in the next five years. Why is 1.5 degrees important? What are the politics of all these various other higher targets? And where are we at in terms of potentially meeting 1.5? Yeah, so the text of the Paris Agreement says that warming should be constrained to well below 2 degrees Celsius. And so 1.5 is sort of an aspiration. Related to your question, it's good to just sort of understand where that where that demand comes from, which has been a sort of longstanding call from folks in climate vulnerable countries in the global south for whom the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is huge. And so the fact that we're talking about 1.5 degrees, that is folks sort of marching through the halls of UN climate talks for many, many years, um, chanting, you know, 1.5 to survive, because for, you know, low-lying island states, for instance, warming of 1.5 degrees represents an existential threat. Currently, we are on track for about 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, and that gives us a really punishingly short window in which to meet even two degrees, which is a bit of a fabrication, right? There's a bit of debate about where the two degree target came from. Some people credit that to the economist William Nordhaus, who, as I write in the book, is not the most reliable source on a lot of these things. But there's something really comforting about a target, right? There's something really comforting about saying this thing that is happening sort of far off is something that we can avoid potentially and we have a bit of time and two degrees gives us more time than 1.5 degrees and so that's been the more popular goal to reach towards that's what you see in sort of fossil fuel industry uh, assessments of of what they want but the, the conversation about targets can sometimes obscure some of what's actually happening you know it's not as if somebody who is living through a hurricane or a natural disaster will say, oh, no, we've hit two degrees Celsius, right? Or, oh, no, we've hit 1.5 degrees, right? The climate crisis is playing out all around us. There's not a point at which, you know, we sort of cross the the boundary toward a climate change disastrous future, right? It's that every sort of tenth of a degree of warming makes an enormous amount of difference, saves an enormous number of lives, probably translates, you know, to something on the order of tens of thousands of lives, and so it's not as if if we cross 1.5 or if we cross even two degrees that it's over, everybody pack up and go home, just wait to die. There are still millions of lives that can be saved by preventing each additional tenth of a degree of warming. You write, quote, capitalism hasn't tended to be a popular protagonist in stories about the climate crisis. Often it's said to be a matter of faulty psychobiology. We humans are hopelessly greedy hardwired not to deal with the earth-shattering consequences of our wasteful ways. Who who invented and who funded 
that narrative? Who perpetuates it? And then relatedly, I suppose, whose interests does that narrative serve? It comes from a lot of different places, uh, this, this narrative that we just can't take on the climate crisis. Certainly the line that it's hopelessly complicated, that you know we, we can't really know all of what's happening. That is something that has come really from the fossil fuel industry and is a sort of you know knock-on effect of years of climate denial proper, what people saying the sun is causing global warming, that global warming might actually be good because it makes the plants grow that carbon dioxide is a wonderful thing and we should create more of it because it makes our lives better. <laughs> Those sorts of lines, you know, we're never putting out a sort of holistic theory of what was happening to the planet, but instead sort of trying to flood the zone with information, make it seem very confusing, make it seem as if, you know, who can really know? I don't have a degree in physics, so, you know, I don't really know what's happening. The line about climate diplomacy is is similar in that it says, you know, oh, well, you know, we can't really do this. And there's something actually hardwired into humans, which makes us incapable of, of making these sorts of decisions. And, and that, you know, has, has been how environmental problems are talked about. Things like this Pogo cartoon uh, where, you know, he's sort of looking out at this field of rubbish and, and trash and saying, we've met the enemy and he is us comes out almost of a of a environmentalist thinking that's a bit older, you know, to say humans are the problem, we, you know, are, are, are feeding this mess. And that particular line, you know, flirts really closely with um, certain veins of xenophobic thinking and nativist thinking to say that, you know, there are too many humans in the world and we have to keep these specific humans out in order to, you know, keep ourselves sort of pure and clean, keep the land uh, that we live on, um, keep our emissions down, right? And that, you know, is a totally incoherent, indefensible line, but that all, you know, feeds into the moment that I talk a bit about in the book, which is when climate change sort of enters the popular consciousness in 1988, in the late 80s, at the tail end of the Reagan administration, when James Hansen gives his testimony before Congress, saying that climate change is a is something we, we really need to worry about that sort of kicks off this first round of global negotiations on global warming, on the greenhouse gas problem, as it was called then. And uh, that's a hugely beneficial line. There's all this sort of context that goes into, into the thinking that, you know, ends up working out very well for fossil fuel companies. So there's this sort of anti-democratic, I would say, impulse to say that humans are bad, that, you know, we collectively have gotten us to this mess. There is a sort of individualist thinking that comes from the neoliberal revolution from, you know, the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, um, which says, you know, there is no such thing as a society. There are only individuals and their family. And that is a sort of unit of societal progress. And thinking anything outside of that is, is, is sort of a fool's errand. And that reflects a real, you know, a real cynicism about what states can do, right? About, you know, the sort of positive role that states can play in society. And that, you know, is a very scary thing. I think there are all of these tools sort of around that we kept, we could use to take on the climate crisis, take on a problem like like greenhouse gases, like stringent regulations, right? Like using the EPA, the sort of full weight of, of that agency and, and, and picking up those tools is, you know, has, has been largely taken off the table um, by the time 
by the time we get to 1988, by the time we get to climate change being talked about in a really big public way. So everything gets filtered through these sort of market market mechanisms to say that you know that is the most powerful force in society um, but that you know becomes pretty quickly after uh, after global warming sort of enters the the, the public conversation um, becomes the sort of de facto policy response through you know a lot of industry lobbying on, on the part of the fossil fuel industry um, I want to get more into the mark the history of the market mechanisms approach later but just to to, to finish out this question around the the blaming individuals. Is that something that's just a happy coincidence for fossil fuel companies or have they actively perpetuated that idea? Yeah. So BP, the company formerly known as British Petroleum, now- Beyond Petroleum. Beyond Petroleum, which was the (laughs) rebranding after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster, uh, which obviously brought them a lot of bad press. uh, But Beyond Petroleum- in uh, the 90s and mid-2000s really um, starts to populate this idea of a carbon footprint. They have a carbon footprint calculator on their website, which advises people, you know, to turn off the lights and sort of it gives out a menu of options for ways that individuals can bring down their carbon footprint. The main result of which obviously is to say, you know, we all are doing our part, right? BP is doing our part. You all can do your part as if, you know, BP did not have an outsized responsibility uh, for this crisis as if the fossil fuel industry, which was sort of one of many actors and not actively fueling demand for fossil fuels and causing a lion's share of the problem. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y dig Jacobin, all lowercase. You write, quote, the best estimates hold that warming could displace anywhere between 25 million and 1 billion people. Border and immigration policies, in other words, are climate policies, and efforts to restrict access to temperate parts of the world will be a defining political issue of the next century. Still, even some progressive messaging on that front imagines climate-fueled migration primarily as a security threat, with borders as one of many national security assets to be defended against the effects of rising temperatures. There's a lot that's an important point, and there's a lot to to think through here. And I think it's not only that border and immigration policies 
our climate policies, but also that border and immigration politics are climate politics. Not so much because of eco-fascism yet, because I think in the U.S. at least it's a fairly minor phenomenon for now, but because the entire spectacle of border control and anti-immigrant politics mystifies the true nature of the crisis at hand, in this case, the climate crisis, also the crisis in U.S. empire, also the crisis in global neoliberal capitalism, mystifies a lot of crises by reifying a false constructed crisis at the border. And it makes it seem as though nationalism and racism rather than internationalism and solidarity are the solutions to the problems that we face. But but in Europe, right-wing politicians have folded the climate crisis into their pre-existing reactionary politics to make a case for ever more hardened borders. What what has happened there? And do you think it could happen here? The framing of this conversation is really different in Europe, in part because climate denial has not been a through line of right-wing politics in the same way that it has in the U.S. I mean, it's Republican Party doctrine that Maybe climate change is real, but we're not going to do anything about it, whatever. Well, that's really not the case for right-wing parties in Europe, including the far right. There are huge majorities there which want to see climate action, but who do not have commitments to a pluralistic and multiracial society. In fact, you know, in some cases, quite the opposite. And so you get leaders in the national rally in France, for instance, saying borders are the environment's greatest ally. I mean, there's huge public support for something like climate action. And once the question is not, is climate change real or not, you get to have that debate within the existing political spectrum as to how to deal with it. And so on the right, the way that European far-right parties have articulated that is to say we need to protect ourselves from climate migrants. I, I do think it's worth noting that it's not only the far-right, which is which is talking about that. The Social Democrats in Denmark have, you know, run really sort of xenophobic campaigns and, and passed aggressively racist policies um, against against Muslim folks in particular. And we'll turn around and say that they're committed to taking on the climate crisis, right? That is just a very different political environment that, that, than we are in in the United States. And I don't know how influential a far-right environmentalism will be in the United States. I think there are strains of it that are really scary. But I do think we can very comfortably say that the far right and the Republican Party itself is already writing climate policy by making borders much more militarized and by empowering agencies like ICE to come and rip people from their homes who, whether or not there's a legal designation that they are climate migrants, if they are fleeing a drought or a natural disaster in Central America, you know, what is what is the legal definition really mean in that in that case? Let's talk about the apotheosis of bipartisan market mechanism climate change policy all the way back a decade plus ago to the 2009 cap and trade legislation under Obama and its total failure, which you write a lot of of fascinating stuff about. You write, quote, there's a comic book version of how climate policy failed in the U.S. in which diabolical fossil fueled billionaire villains call on their trusty henchmen in the GOP to swoop in and snatch away the country's best chance for climate action. 
There's plenty of truth to that tale, but identifying the hero isn't nearly so cut and dry. A decade ago, Democrats controlled every branch of government and, for a time, seemed poised to pass legislation that would curb emissions and build a clean energy economy. Corporate meddling wasn't the only thing that torpedoed climate legislation in 2010. Neither was it only big donors who cost Democrats all three branches of government over the next decade. You continue, quote, Having bought into right-wing nostrums about the dangers of regulation and the superhuman powers of the market, Democrats and Big Green eagerly treated the fossil fuel industry as a good-faith ally in the climate fight, regardless of the industry's material interests and activities, which would keep driving greenhouse gas emissions up and ward off the threat any reasonable climate policy would pose to it. I didn't know about the details of this history, particularly this alliance between big oil and big green mainstream environmentalists that guided and then ultimately doomed climate legislation under Obama. What happened and why did mainstream environmentalists think that that fossil fuel companies could be their partners in passing climate legislation? Yeah, so the passage you quoted there is talking about this thing called the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, which gets going just before the Obama administration and is looking to pass cap and trade legislation going in, you know, there had been this sort of success story or perceived success story around how the U.S. dealt with acid rain through a cap and trade program through these amendments to um, to the Clean Air Act. And that was seen as this model, right, that could be used to take on any number of, of environmental challenges. And so before Obama takes office, you know, there is this kind of slew of bills from both Republicans and Democrats for some sort of carbon pricing, a lot of them around cap and trade. There are, you know, seems to be some sort of bipartisan energy around passing some sort of climate policy. So what the Environmental Defense Fund helps do is convene this thing called the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, which brings together uh, the likes of BP, ConocoPhillips, as well as, you know, other sort of big business um, types with the theory that if you get businesses on board, in particular, higher carbon businesses who can go to bat for climate policy, that will unlock Republican support. So if they see there is, you know, a corporate sort of energy around a climate policy that will bring Republicans into the fold and that will allow a bipartisan package to pass. So they convene this coalition. And what ends up helping to undermine it is the fact that the same corporations that are joining U.S. CAP, the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, are at the same time members of things like the Chamber of Commerce and the American Petroleum Institute and the National Association of Manufacturers. And all of those organizations are fueling these efforts to make sure that nothing happens, that nothing passes, and are running campaigns against the idea of cap and trade. They're on the so-called green side of the debate, watering down the bill as much as possible, while also being on the other side of the debate, which is convincing American voters that any sort of climate legislation poses a visceral threat to their way of life. Exactly. It's a total win-win for them. On the one hand, as you said, they can just, you know, totally water down anything which is coming out of 
Congress. And then on the other hand, they can turn around and make sure that doesn't pass. So whatever happens, you know, they're, they're pretty well set up uh, to, 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 you know, win, win the day. And the sort of like corporate, like Janice faced self-dealing on the one hand and the Koch brothers coming in and totally, you know, energizing the Tea Party to fight back against, uh, against any sort of climate policy um, combined. And I mean, it just, it dies, right? And I think, you know, there, there is a way to tell that story that, of course, is about, you know, just the total ubiquity of fossil fuel money in politics, the sort of power of the Koch brothers. But, you know, there's, there's also this other thing happening, which is, is that, you know, there isn't anyone who in 2009 or 2010 who is not deeply involved in those fights who can really explain to you what cap and trade is, right? There's no reason <laughs> in the midst of a recession for anyone off the street to say, yes, I want a cap and trade policy and to articulate what that will do for them. And focus from the green groups who are pushing it and from Democrats is not on convincing anyone that this is a good idea. It opens up this huge opportunity for the right to come in and say, this is going to raise your gas prices. This is going to, you know, ruin the economy, right? Because there's just no attempt to really build either a coalition around it or even to make the case for why cap and trade is good. And this is what mainstream critics of the Green New Deal want to go back to. You cite Bloomberg's Noah Smith writing, quote, Although a big push for renewable energy is needed, the Green New Deal's vast program for economic egalitarianism could make it unworkable. As if something else had been workable. <laughs> As if the alternative had ever borne any fruit. Like, we just haven't seen technocratic climate measures ever work in this country, let alone, you know, uh, carbon pricing, which, you know, is not necessarily what he's what he's talking about there. But the idea after decades of Republican priming to just to go on the full offense against anything called climate policy that you can sneak it around the edges and just like write in a couple of, you know, line items for renewable energy and that'll get the job done is insane. And we're talking about the fossil fuel industry and their allies while they're pretending to be working with these big greens, really like two-timing them in a pretty like hilarious, if it wasn't the fate of the planet at stake, pretty hilarious way, pulling out every Machiavellian stop to shut down what was considered extremely moderate, bipartisan, common sense, think tank approved climate legislation. I mean, was cap and trade or any sort of market mechanism even capable of dealing with climate change? Like, would it have been how much of a net good would it have been if it had passed? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. And and the bill Waxman-Markey was not only cap and trade, I think it is important to mention, would have, you know, included a lot of spending, would have included a lot of other things, which but also built into it was kneecapping the authority of the EPA, right, to, uh, to to regulate carbon dioxide. You know, even that attempt to, like, degrade the regulatory authority, like the most powerful tool the U.S. government has to limit carbon emissions uh, doesn't work. I mean, they just they just fight it regardless, no matter how much, no matter how many sweeteners are built in for carbon intensive industry. They fight it. There's an interesting bit in uh, Christopher Leonard's book that I'll mention just, just briefly, Cokeland, um, where he says that you know Coke 
industries had people study the effects of Waxman Markey before they decided to mount this really aggressive campaign against it and actually found that they would make money off of it. Uh, <laughs> what they didn't like was that there were, you know, other industries who would get get a better deal out of it, that their, you know, refinery business would be uh, would be impacted. If the politics around climate change are going to be so intense or going to be so pitched in the way that we just know that they will be, why then try to negotiate with a party with industries that have no interest, no interest in, in passing anything. Why like just go groveling to them? I mean, fossil fuels, if I remember correctly from your book, fossil fuel companies attacked cap and trade in part by arguing that a carbon tax would be a better option. But then just three years ago in 2018, those same companies spent tens of millions of dollars to successfully convince voters to reject a modest carbon tax referendum from passing in Washington state. So in, in that case, you know, BP, which for years has said they support carbon pricing, that they support a carbon tax, a global carbon tax, along with companies like ExxonMobil and, and other oil majors, just goes ballistic against a very, very modest carbon price in Washington state in in 2018. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, a, a big lesson of the book, right, is that anything no matter how modest, no matter how tailor-made it is to please industry, is going to just face total wrath from industries whose entire business model is structured around digging up and burning more fossil fuels. You write, quote, there's no secret long-term vision for what the world will look like in 30 or 300 years. Just a series of mostly disconnected schemes for how to make as much money as possible at any particular point in the stratigraphic record. Why can't capitalists understand that their commitment to fossil fuels is undermining the conditions for their own profitability in the future? Or, or is it actually not threatening their future profitability? Is that what's going on? And then... Why can't the state, the entity that's supposed to be acting as the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, why isn't the state during this moment of capitalism able to figure out those big picture questions that individual capitalists obviously cannot? How should we think about how fossil fuel companies and companies in general, how their material interests are or not being articulated through politics right now? Yeah, on, on the first point, I mean, so there's been a shift, I would say, in the last couple of years. Three, four years ago, I probably would have said that any sort of statement by the likes of BlackRock or Wall Street touting a kind of green initiative was just plainly greenwashing, right? It was just a branding exercise, basically. Um I think that is starting to change in a pretty meaningful way that is interesting. And I think what's happening is that, you know, there are arms of capital whose core business model is not fossil fuels, who you do see a profit to be made from green industrial policy. There is a lot of money to be made and there are increasingly, you know, from places like Europe, not yet the United States, um, real there's real investment being being put toward that in a real sense in some parts of the world that things like internal combustion engine vehicles are not 
long for this world and that something will replace it. And if you're a company like BlackRock, who represents in some sense the entire economy, why would you have this sort of strange attachment to an industry which is not doing very well? If profit's the bottom line, then you should be somewhat agnostic to how that profit's made if you're a good capitalist. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's that's what's <laughs> what's what's happening more and more is that the commitment to a fossil fuel economy is not as central to capital writ large as it was, you know, f- 15 years ago. There's a sort of agnosticism, right, about uh, about, you know, what fuels the economy and uh, I, I think that's an interesting question for socialists, you know, on a mm-hmm. sort of political strategy level, right? Like what arms of capital are the enemies in this fight, which are sort of there and can be abided by. And it's helpful, arguably, to not have the entirety of the capitalist class sort of arrayed against anything called climate action. I mean, to be to be kind of blunt about it. I think that's probably not something socialists would want, <laughs> you know. But but it, but capitalism is a is a massively resilient system, right? And there's there's no contradiction between a clean energy economy and extraction. Uh, in fact, you know, in some cases, quite the opposite, as as Theory of Frankis has written about <laughs> uh, at, at at great length. Recently, BlackRock backed a number of activist shareholders who won a hard-fought effort to elect dissident members to ExxonMobil's board. What's the significance of that election, and will it do any good? Yeah, I mean, getting right to the heart of the murky politics of this weird shift happening among capitalists on the on the climate crisis question. I mean, BlackRock for a while has tried to market itself as being a climate hero uh, and in practice what that's mostly looked like so far has been to offer a few kind of niche funds that are ESG that have kind of green characteristics uh, in addition to what makes them most of their money which are these big uh, passively managed funds which just invest you know undiscerningly in the the, the big the big index funds and do not, you know, take out fossil fuels. Will not, you know, make any um, any sort of exclusions for coal, oil, or gas. Um, are just, you know, entirely run by an algorithm, right? And so that has been called out by activists, you know, both here and in Europe, um, as being pretty transparent greenwashing. And BlackRock has come under a lot of pressure by people saying you are a massive stakeholder in some of the biggest fossil fuel companies on earth and until very recently i mean until this this sort of recent um recent vote had just supported you know what fossil fuel industry executives supported their board choices uh, and them coming out and, and supporting this sort of activist shareholder push uh, at exxon is in some ways new. I mean, I think it augurs really well, right, for the climate movement. It shows a sort of strength of, of the climate movement and helping push the conversation such that shareholders in ExxonMobil feel compelled to push for something on the inside of the company. I'm skeptical that it gets us very far. 
the only thing that made me hopeful at all was the fact that ExxonMobil opposed it so staunchly. Right. The fact that it made them <laughs> mad was like the, main, <laughs> the main upshot of that story. But I mean, if you think in like the medium to long term, what I think about is what what is the goal? Is the goal a green ExxonMobil? Is the goal an ExxonMobil which invests more in renewables and that takes an increasing stake of wind and solar power? Do we want ExxonMobil to be successful in the long run? And I would say no. <laughs> so in that sense, I think I'm a bit of an accelerationist when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, which is that these sorts of shareholder pushes, which I think, you know, in, in, in some cases can have really well-intentioned roots, are setting them up for more success in in the long term. I don't think the goal should be to make ExxonMobil sustainable, which I think in, in some level is probably just impossible, right? Their entire business model is to dig up and burn as much oil and gas as possible. Um, that's That's not about to change. And they've misled the public about the existence of climate change. <laughs> they've, you know, are just phenomenally bad actors who have their teeth in our political system in a really awful way that degrades democracy, you know, are bad actors in every sense of the word. We can't really understand the economic situation and prospects for oil and natural gas companies without looking at the just massive amount of state support they have and continue to receive. And you write a lot about this. You write that natural gas only became economically viable because of the low interest rates that followed the 2007 crash. And you write that they have stepped in, the U.S. government has stepped in time and again to rescue the industry, including in 2016 when Obama, Obama the liberal saint, ended a long-standing ban on fossil fuel exports. Again, in this most recent pandemic, the federal response has helped the oil and gas industry, right? Not its workers, but the industry, including the Fed's unprecedented response. How... How critical has federal support been for natural gas in particular and fossil fuel companies in the U.S. more generally? And then what does that history of government support or just huge government support, what does it tell us about how state power might be wielded as a progressive force to shut down the industry? Yeah, I think it's important to understand the fossil fuel industry in the United States a, it's being very strange in that it's dominated by private actors rather than state-run companies, which is the case in most major fossil fuel producers on Earth. And it's kind of a public-private partnership and has been for as long as the fossil fuel industry has existed. And one of the big myths that the industry likes to tell about itself and about something like the shale revolution after the last recession is that they had innovated this new technology which made it possible to access new oil and gas reserves and bring the United States energy independence and create jobs. And it's a really you know, heroic tale about innovation. When in reality, and you know, Bethany McLean have a, has a great book on this, uh, it's a creature of finance, right? The technology for fracking had been around for a long time before the shale revolution happened. What made the difference was 
Wall Street having a lot of cash to throw around and, and throw at it. And that cash being sort of greased by an enormous number of federal subsidies, which make oil and gas a very good deal. So it's not true that industry just innovated their way toward a fracking renaissance, but that the U.S. government picked a winner, right? It picked a winner in the fossil fuel industry and, you know, has been doing that for a very long time. And the line that industry likes to say is that it would be such a, a betrayal of free market principles if wind and solar were to receive generous subsidies and we're not on a level playing field, which ignores, you know, the enormous amount of subsidies that the fossil fuel industry gets. So it's not a matter of directing just new state support toward solar and wind and clean energy and electric vehicles or mass transit or any of these things, but redirecting the enormous amount of state support that already flows in to the companies that are killing us. I mean, the IMF has estimated that the fossil fuel industry collects something on the order of $5.1 trillion globally in subsidies. And what does it look like to redirect the sorts of industrial policy, the sorts of subsidies and funding gone to make those industries possible, right? They would not exist if it were not for state support. We've talked a lot about domestic policy, but global warming, of course, is a global thing. And it cannot be confronted without multilateral coordination between carbon emitting states everywhere. But unfortunately, the forum for achieving this very, very necessary multilateral coordination has been the United Nations Climate Change Conferences, or COPs. And people probably know them by their more famous, their most famous meetings, Kyoto, Copenhagen, Paris. What what are the COPs? How did we get to the Paris Accords? And to what extent have they accomplished anything meaningful at all? I'll start by talking a bit about the COPs, which stands for Conference of Parties. Those are parties to the United Nations Framework Conventions on Climate Change. That process sort of got its start uh, most officially at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, which sort of set up this framework, the Framework Conventions on Climate Change, for world governments to discuss how to take on the climate crisis in a coordinated and multilateral way. And for the first several years of its existence, was sort of driving toward this thing called the Kyoto Protocol, which the Clinton administration signed on to and became the bete noire of one of the earlier sort of climate denying formations called the Global Climate Coalition, sort of convened by the National Association of Manufacturers and a number of kind of right wing think tanks that I'm sure listeners will recognize like the Heritage Foundation and the Heartland Institute and all these groups sort of come to bear and, and are fighting the U.S. involvement in the Kyoto Protocol with a lot of funding from companies like ExxonMobil and succeed in getting the U.S. to pull out of that uh, and to undermine the agreement and force the global community to think about a new a new framework for, for how to take on the climate crisis under under the UN auspices. And so from 1997 on, 
are thinking through what is something that can include the United States, what is a what is an agreement which will not need uh, Senate approval, which was the crux of, of why the U.S. ended up pulling out of Kyoto for, for various reasons. Uh, and so what gets created, and I'm skipping many, many steps in this process, is the Paris Agreement, which rather than being a quote-unquote bottom-up framework like the one embodied in the Kyoto Protocol where most of the emissions reductions, nearly all of the emissions reductions were set to come from wealthier countries that had long been industrialized, countries like the United States and those in the so-called global north. In the Paris Agreement framework, there's this sort of bottom-up structure where every country on earth comes up with their own what are called nationally determined contributions. And they collectively compiled this plan to limit warming by two degrees Celsius. You, you write, quote, decades of efforts have resulted in rules protecting corporate investments across borders that are leagues more powerful than the non-binding documents meant to protect the planet. What can we learn from comparing the sort of international legal frameworks built up to protect capital and investment like the WTO to those like the Paris Accords that are purportedly about saving the only planet that we have to live on from from climate change. How do they differ? And what does that difference reflect? Sure. So the Paris Agreement has virtually no enforcement power. You know, there are very few punishments. There's just not not much to make sure that anything happens under the Paris Agreement beyond some sort of commitment to multilateralism. Compare that to the Energy Charter Treaty or the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement, NAFTA 2.0, which protect the right of investors, not even companies, but investors in companies to sue sovereign governments if they threaten profits, right? They can bring them before a court and say, your energy law, your new climate rule is posing a threat to our coal plants and we will sue you for millions of dollars and we will get that money in arbitration courts run by bodies like the International Chamber of Commerce. And uh, there's nothing like that to enforce climate rules. You write, quote, why have all these years of talks and meetings yielded an agreement without any sort of binding enforcement mechanism? And that, if all of the pledges therein were perfectly honored, would still likely warm the world by more than three degrees. What has gummed this international process up? And why has the United States failed to pass the national climate policy within its own borders and gone out of its way to block ambition internationally? Very big questions. I think the Paris Agreement is important. I think it is good that there is a global agreement to deal with a climate crisis and that it took about 30 years to get to that point is very depressing. Um, But it's good that it exists. But something, you know, I found reporting on these climate talks um, and going back and forth is that the debates that are happening within the UN around climate change are really, really similar to debates that have been happening in the UN for a very, very long time. The United States plays a big role in these conversations. It's not the only country pushing this line. But regardless of what party is occupying the White House, who controls Congress, what I think 
George H.W. Bush probably best summed up at the Rio Earth Summit and saying the American way of life is not up for negotiations. This real commitment to making sure that that there should not be any conversation about historical responsibility, in particular of which the United States shares a really outsized responsibility. I mean, the fact is that the countries which have contributed the least to climate change are feeling the worst impacts already and have the least financial capacity to deal with it. In the New York Times, Somini Sengupta recently wrote, quote, The vaccine gap presents an object lesson for climate action because it signals the failure of richer countries to see it in their self-interest to urgently help poorer ones fight a global crisis. That has direct parallels to global warming. Poor countries consistently assert that they need more financial and technological help from wealthier ones if the world as a whole is going to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. So far, the richest countries, which are also the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, haven't come up with the money. Do you agree with this rather pessimistic analysis that rich countries, this this nationalist response that we've seen from rich countries like the U.S. to the pandemic so far that it's pretty bad news for the sort of redistributive and multilateral policies that will be required, that are required right now to confront climate change? Yes, I would agree that it's pretty bad news. (laughs) (laughs) uh, An understatement. There's so many parallels between the vaccine apartheid that's happening and eco-apartheid, right? I mean, even down to individual countries not getting the vaccine as the U.S. towards it. And I think the phrase from the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is apt here, is common but differentiated responsibility, right? Which, you know, has historically meant that wealthy nations have an outsized responsibility and capacity to fund, in this case, climate mitigation and adaptation efforts that make us all safer, right? Making sure that it is not a better option for countries that are electrifying to use coal power or to extract new oil reserves is a collect is a real collective responsibility right we are all better off if developing countries are not locking in 30 to 40 more years of coal-fired power plants just to underline that the u.s is insisting on an approach that denies the global south an opportunity to use fossil fuels in the same way that wealthy countries did to develop because the only other way to do it is to compensate them for not using fossil fuels to develop and give them an alternative way to develop. So it's not just unjust. It makes dealing with climate change globally a non-starter. And it makes the whole approach to U.S. climate diplomacy look unhinged, right? To look at John Kerry sort of globetrotting around the world and browbeating other countries about them using coal when the entire U.S. economy was built on fossil fuels. And it's one thing to do that with any sort of substantive commitment to making solar power accessible. You know, you could imagine some sort of alternate reality in which 
the Biden administration is offering something like a Marshall Plan, but there's nothing on offer. There's there's just very little money on the table, period, to, to make that happen. And so to have the U.S. approach be to shame other countries for developing in the way that it has, I, I mean, it makes no sense, for one, but it's also just bad politics to end that up. And, and there isn't really an answer to that question that doesn't involve thinking about debt relief, that doesn't involve thinking about the ways in which the world order is really structured to accumulate wealth at the top. I mean, it's impossible for other countries to make a transition to a clean energy economy if there isn't some sort of global redistribution happening in one form or the other. And so long as that conversation is kept off the table, as the U.S. has consistently fought for within the UNFCCC to obscure the meaning of what common but differentiated responsibility is. I, I don't know how we get any farther. And, you know, Todd Stern, who was Obama's lead climate negotiator, is sort of credited with with the Paris Agreement as sum this up. And, you know, it's this sort of hot mic situation in 2012 in Durban. And he said, if equity's in, we're out. You know, and that Damn. Defines a lot about how we're dealing with the vaccine, how we're dealing with the climate crisis, how we think about, you know, international finance. Um, that has been the sort of bipartisan approach to climate diplomacy is if equities and we're out. Looking ahead to the next months and, and years, what possible paths might climate politics take and what can the left in the U.S. and elsewhere do to make it as likely as possible that we take the best path possible. Yeah, I mean, we're in a really interesting spot. The national conversation on climate politics has, because of movements, managed to get so far relative to where we were in the Obama administration. Big federal investment is on the table in a real way very expansive climate demands are being talked about in the White House in a way that just was not true the decade ago. Um, so there is a lot of possibility there. And all of the opposition is there too, right? The, the Republican Party is not about to come to the table and pass anything called climate policy. And, you know, I wish I had some magic ball to say what would make Kristen Sinema or Joe Manchin vote for uh, an expansive uh, climate package. I do think there's a lot of work that can be done to make climate policy a good deal for West Virginia and, you know, to for Arizona to some extent, but to really focus on real investment in uh communities that have historically relied on coal is 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 really important for all the reasons we've we've already talked about um but you know i i, I think when it comes to movements and climate politics there is a lot of work to be done over the next 10 years and i don't think we are going to get a resolution to that within an infrastructure package and I think it's up to movements to make the case that climate policy can 
improve lives and really focus on building a winning coalition to make more climate policy possible, um, which is not easy, right? I, I think, you know, advocacy like that for the PRO Act from DSA and, uh, and, and, and unions can help do the type of thing that the New Deal did, right, by making structural changes to labor law, which make it possible to build working class power in ways that can win elections, in ways that can push popular demands for climate action, can make it clear that wind and solar will be strongly unionized industries. Um, but I think that, you know, is the work of, of the next decade of decarbonization, right? Win as much as possible in the short term in an infrastructure package or reconciliation or whatever form that ends up taking and fight for that to be um, fight for that to be as strong as it possibly can be as big and expansive as it possibly can. And, you know, this is sort of crude and feels like ugly to this feels sort of dirty to say, but I do think Democrats need to win reelection in 2020 too, in order for anything else like climate policy to pass. And I don't trust Democrats to win re-election uh, without ideas from the left. I think given the scale of work required for decarbonization and just the sheer amount of policy that will be needed to even start meeting this crisis at the speed and scale required, that route runs through taking state power. And I don't see a path toward that which does not involve strong movements, which does not involve really militant action in the streets as soon as possible, uh, starting yesterday. Kate Aronoff, thank you very much. Thank you. Kate Aronoff is a staff writer at The New Republic covering climate and energy and the author of Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that capitalist production develops technology and the combining together of various processes into a social whole only by sapping the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, and this episode was edited by Alex Hainsworth. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Theo Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Every single interview from the archives, organized by topic and by guest. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever else, please leave us a friendly review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people about the show, why you listen to it, why they should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.